0: Good morning, glad you're here today. Students of church history remember the Great Awakening, you've probably heard of that. Jonathan Edwards is a name we associate with that. It was in that period of time when he was presiding over a prayer meeting, a large prayer meeting for men. By large, I mean there were 800 men who had gathered for this time of prayer. But before the meeting started, Edwards was given a note by a woman saying her husband would be there. And it asked for prayers for him. And the note described the man as becoming unloving, prideful, selfish, and difficult to live with. Edwards decided to to deal with that, but he wasn't sure how. He knew the woman's name. He knew the man's name. Should he call the man out? Should he talk to the man privately? She wanted the whole group to pray for him. So, Evers decided to read the note to the men and see if the man would identify himself. So, he read the note in front of 800 men, and without calling the name, he asked if the man who had been described would raise his hand so the whole gathering could pray for him. 300 men <laughs> raised their hands. You appreciate their authenticity, their vulnerability. Would you have raised your hand? It's hard to admit we have faults. It's hard to confess those to others. It's hard to talk about those things. We like our masks, and the longer we wear them, the more comfortable they become. And we become good at pretending. We've been studying Matthew chapter 23 for the last three weeks. If you're a guest with us today, you're encouraged to open your Bible to Matthew 23 and follow along. The verses are on the screen, but sometimes it's good just to look at it in your own Bible. And there's also an outline on the back of the bulletin you can follow along. Today we're going to wrap up this series on hypocrisy. And while this was spoken 2,000 years ago by Jesus to the spiritual leaders of that day, the applications are still relevant for all followers of Jesus even today. Quick review for what we've been studying. It's at the top of your outline there. In our first lesson, we looked at the first four verses and talked about the pretenders. Jesus said they do not practice what they preach. And then we studied verses 5 through 12 and talked about the self-righteous. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. And then last week, we talked about verses 13 through 24. We called them the religious bullies. Those are also listed on your outline. The woe. These are the seven woes. The first four, their spiritual prejudice. Um, Jesus said they shut the kingdom in people's faces. Woe two, they made disciples, not for God, but for themselves. They had all the answers. They wanted people to come to them in order to get to God. And in woe three, they deliberately distorted the scriptures for profit. It was all about saying the right words, who you swear by, who you don't. And in woe four, they majored in minors and the neglect of the majors. They would even give a tenth of their household spices, but forgot things like justice and mercy and faithfulness. Well, today's lesson is called Respectable Fraud. And I want to encourage you to just kind of jump in with us on this lesson and be a part of the small group Bible studies tonight. If you're not part of a group, uh, grab an elder or minister, we can point you, let you come to one of ours or join the group that meets here in the building. But I want to ask the question, what is a respectable fraud? What is a respectable fraud? I'm talking about an individual who's gained respect, but not by being real, but by deceiving themselves and others. You've seen it. I think we've all seen it. I would even say the longer you've been at church, maybe the better we become at this. After you've been at church for a while, after enough time passes, you realize that confessing your sins to one another is one of those things we don't really feel like we have to do. You don't have to admit a shortcoming. And if you do, you keep it quite generic, sort of benign, just something that's kind of simple and on the surface. Respectable frauds learn how to keep up appearances by maintaining an image. The last thing they want you to know or to think of them is that they've got troubles, that they've got an issue, that they've got a sin problem. So they're never going to talk about their marriage being in trouble. They're never going to talk about having financial struggles. They're not going to talk about how uh, being a parent sometimes is overwhelming. For sure, they're never going to mention anything about a mental illness kind of struggle. If they're a young mother, she's not going to say anything about being depressed in those early days. If they're a man, they're not going to tell a Christian brother, there's this lady at work that keeps catching my eye, and I'm just not sure what to do about it. See, all these are just examples of how over the years we learn to keep things hidden. And in hypocrisy, we need to be real about this. It's not just in church. It's just people. It's everywhere. It's in politics. It's on the job. But it's also... At church, in fact, it may be where hypocrisy plays out the worst. so let's look at the fifth woe. Woe number five, and again, thanks to Terry Northcut for his summations of these. They're so good and I'm continuing to use those. Woe number five, their devotion was outward only. Their devotion was outward only. Look at Matthew 23 verse 25 to 26. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be cleaned. What you notice two words he shares here because they're so important. The word used for greed means plundering or pillaging, extortion. And when he talks about self-indulgence there, the basic meaning of the word there, a lack of self-control or, or just unrestrained self-gratification. Or to put it in our words, it was all about me. That's what he's saying about these people. And this condemnation of the religious leaders was necessary. But I think we might, we might need the same, even today. Because the same thing can still happen to us, even preachers. Preachers can start out, they want to do great things to build the kingdom of God. But after they get started, it's all about their kingdom and their following and their name. And they lose the focus. I like how the message prayer faces Matthew 7, verses 15 and 16. I put this on the screen. Be wary of false preachers who smile a lot, dripping with practiced sincerity. Chances are they're out to rip you off some way or another. Don't be impressed with charisma. Look for character. Who, who preachers are is the main thing, not what they say. What Jesus is saying here in Matthew 23 is keep things in perspective. First, clean the outside of the dish. And then get on the inside. Get get all of them. Start on the inside. Quick question. How many of you, when you go to a restaurant, don't raise your hand, but when you go to a restaurant or any kind of food establishment, you look for the health inspection grade? You know who you are. Now point to them. (laughs) There are some people, that's what you do. You notice that. Or you ever go into a restaurant where you have to seat yourself and you try to find a, a, a clean table and this one's got some crumbs and that one's got a few napkins or, or whatever, and you look and look, you're not impressed. Or maybe the server brings you a glass of water and you look at it and before your food even comes, you see lipstick residue on the glass. You've been there before. you are not even started the meal. But, but your mind is made up about that place. You understand what's going on with all of that. Jesus says, first, pay attention to the inside. Clean the inside. Now, our tendency is to take just the opposite approach. We want to make sure what do we look like, maybe hoping that the inside will eventually catch up. I'm not sure. But respectable frauds think you just added a little Jesus to make you look the part. Not enough to make you weird or stand out, but enough to make you fit in or cover up those slight imperfections. But Jesus isn't finished. Woe well, number six. The righteousness was dead. The righteousness was dead. Look at verses 27 and 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Well, I was trying to understand what he was saying here, and I looked it up. Jesus did not say whitewashed, because I looked up the origin of that word was not until the 16th, 17th century. But the idea was alive and well in Jesus' time. The rich would make the tombs look better by putting this plaster, this decorative plaster on the walls. After the spring rains, the Jews in Palestine would would whitewash the tombs. They wanted to make sure that for all those coming in for the Passover, for all the tourists coming in, that everything looked good. And so this is something they would do every time. So the term whitewash, as we think of it, is a great translation because that's exactly what's going on. And everybody knew exactly what Jesus meant when he made this description. Whitewashed tombs, spectacular, eye-catching. It looked good, but on the inside, it's death. That's what it's covering up. So for the respectable fraud, it's a facade. It's a mask. It's all for show. And you ask those close to the person, and they'll tell you so. You talk with their family. You ask their children, you interview their co-workers, you speak with their neighbors, and they'll tell you, oh, it's a different story than you know. You'll hear statements like, well, he's fine as long as he's not drinking. Or she's fine as long as she gets her way. Or she acts nice at church, but when when, when she gets home, she constantly yells and, and tears us down publicly. They've got it all together, but you should see them when it's just them at home. Look at verse 28 again. So you outwardly, you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus says when you're two-faced, when you're hypocritical, double-minded, whatever the word is you want to use there, it's like what is inside of you is dead. That's the contrast here. You're full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. You ever been driving down the road on like a hot summer day and you smell something dead? Maybe even before you, you see the carcass, in fact, that may alert you to look for something because you smell it first. Or maybe you've been uh, away from home for a while and you come home and you come into your house, you left it clean, and it smells dead. Maybe a mouse got some poison crawled to the wall, ceiling, ever happened to you, something like that? House looks good, but you're not resting until you get that out of there because the stench is so overwhelming. Anthony Sowell. Anthony Sowell is from Cleveland, Ohio, and in 2009 was charged with strangling 11 women over the course of several years. He had their decomposing bodies in his house. Now, if you walked by the house, drove by the house, talked to the neighbors, it looked good. Their house didn't stand out in any way more than anyone else. But in time, it was the smell that caught the attention of the neighbors who alerted the authorities and investigated what was happening and found the serial killer. can't even describe that. But Jesus is saying to the religious leaders, I've noticed something smells around here, and it's you. It was so obvious to Jesus. He knew where the odor was coming from. And for the respectable fraud, they become a professional pretender. Have you seen the commercials for Febreze? They use the phrase nose blind. Talk about Jimmy's socks. You know, the room is full of socks. He's become nose blind. He doesn't smell it. There's one for cars. And he talks about this car. It becomes a dog. It smells like the dog. And, but the owner, she doesn't smell it. She's become nose blind. That's what we're talking about here, being nose blind. These religious leaders were hiding behind their mask. But everybody else smelled the stink. Look at the last one. Number seven. Their murderous intent. The murderous intent. Matthew 23, verses 29 through 36. Kind of a lengthy reading, but stay with me. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding of the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murder the prophets. "'Fill up then the measure of your fathers. "'You serpents, you brood of vipers, "'how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? "'Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, "'and some of whom will you will kill and crucify, "'and some you will flog in your synagogues "'and persecute from town to town, "'so that on you may come all the righteous blood "'shed on earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel "'to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Bachariah, "'whom you murder between the sanctuary and the altar. "'Truly I say to you, "'all these things will come upon this generation.'" The scribes and the Pharisees had erected these beautiful tombs, monuments to the prophets of old and boasted that they would not have killed them. But what is so bizarre is that they're very guilty of the thing that they're saying they're not doing. Jesus told them that you're just like your forefathers here. And Jesus was right. He's talking to the ones who had rejected John the Baptist and he's beheaded. And now they're plotting for a way to kill the true Messiah all the while boasting about these monuments that they had erected. Jesus said he'd send them even more men of God, prophets, teachers, and they would do the same thing to them. Jesus uses two names there, Abel and Zechariah. You and I might read that and go, well, there's A to Z. And actually, that is true. You've got the first Christian martyr in the Old Testament all the way to the last mentioned in that statement. You know, it's rare that Jesus in His teaching is just so blunt, you know, so in your face, so so condemning in His statements. But He is here, and He's got a right to do so. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Because they have not yet admitted their guilt; they are still hiding behind the mask. You know, for anyone who's familiar with addiction, you know the first step is admitting that you have a problem. You know, even those who are not uh, part of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know one of the first steps you do is you say your name and you admit that you are an alcoholic. That's just a part of it. You never get beyond that. For those of us who are not addicted to alcohol or drugs, we may be tempted to put ourselves maybe on a spiritual higher plane because we don't have that problem. But think about this. From a spiritual perspective... Which sin is worse, being addicted to a substance or being addicted to self righteousness? Any sin will cause you to be separated from God. But as you study the life of Jesus, think about this as you study the life of Jesus, Jesus is consistently passionate, I mean, compassionate and forgiving and patient with the repentant sinner. Zacchaeus, who says, I'll pay it back then, all I owe and more. The adulterous woman, the woman who's caught, she says nothing to excuse her guilt. But Jesus has no compassion on those who would wear the mask, on those who would hide behind the facade, on those who would not admit that they had a sin problem. See, I'm not saying that we all have sin and that's okay, because we all have sin and that's far from okay. It's very bad. It's awful. But the respectable fraud thinks his sin her sin is not as bad as others' sins. And when you reach for that mask, that desire to hide is revealing something about our heart that we are the respectable fraud and we need to repent. Maybe you fooled some people. Maybe they respect you because they can't see the real you, because you fooled them. See, sin is ugly. And God hates it. And if you stay in it, what Jesus is saying, you're going to go to hell. That's just kind of part of Scripture. How are you going to escape that? But for the respectable fraud, they're not thinking about that. They're thinking, what if people find out? And so they play the cover-up game. Look at this challenging, yet very empowering verse from James 5, 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. A respectable fraud is not interested in being healed because they're trying to hide the problem. He's got an image to keep up. A respectable fraud is consumed with what people think of them. And you compare that to a genuine follower of Jesus who knows, knows they need God's grace, and they're eager to receive it. So let me ask a question. What if we were to concentrate, what if we were to concentrate on our heart? the condition of our soul, as much as we do with how we appear, with how we look, with how we present ourselves to other people. How would our choices, our schedule, your relationships, your life be different? The Japanese have a saying. They say you have three faces. The first face you show to the world, the second face you show to your family and your close friends, The third face, you never show anyone. Mary England reminded me of a statement that Marvin Phillips uh, was, he uh, made public, made known. You may have heard this before from Marvin Phillips. He said everyone had three faces. One he shows, one he thinks he shows, and the one he actually has. The challenge is just to be who you are, just to be authentic. Phoniness turns people away, true in any setting, in any setting, but especially at church. People pretending they're something they're not is painfully damaging to the church. And we like to say the church doesn't send mixed signals and, and no one is two-faced and there's not a hypocrite among us, but we know every time we hear a statement about there being hypocrites in the church... We know there's some truth in that because we know ourselves. We know it's true. Think about it. Some jobs, there's an annual evaluation where you kind of look, how are you doing? Maybe each of us need to kind of have an evaluation from time to time. A time of introspection. and Look at your own life. We've been studying for a month now about hypocrisy. And so go to God and say, God, what are some areas that I'm just like them? I'm blind and I can't see it. Open my eyes. I want to see. And then by your spirit, transform me. Help me to confess that. Help me to be real. And allow me to work through that. Let me be honest with you and honest with others. Well, here's another question. Why do we even think we can fool people? Why do we even go that route? Why do we want the mask? Well, maybe a couple of reasons. Number one, we hide our flaws. We look better than we really are. We look like we've got it all together when we really don't. Or maybe we wear a mask because we want to impress people. We want others to like us, to accept us, to include us, to look up to us. We don't want people to judge us if they knew the real us. We don't want people to think we're weak. We don't want people to think that we struggle. No materialism here. No lust here. No greed here. No lack of faith here. I always believe. So we keep the mask handy. We never leave home without it. We become good at pretending. Let me give you a test. When your spiritual life is fueled by the approval of others, you're going to do all you can to avoid solitude with God. Think about that. When your whole standing, your whole spiritual life is fueled by the approval of others, you're going to do all you can to avoid solitude with God. Contrast that to the wisdom of Proverbs eleven three, The integrity of the upright guides them, but the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. You know, there can be a moment in worship where you know God knows you. God sees you. He knows you in your core. He knows you in your soul. He knows all your faults. He knows all your sins. And that moment, you know, the masks are gone. It's you and God, and that's a wonderful thing. And I want to encourage you, when you have that moment, When that moment passes, resist the urge to put the mask back on. Instead, think about what the Bible talks about, being clothed with Christ, having the heart of Christ, having the mind of Christ, having the love of Christ. Look at Acts 2.46. It describes the first century Christians. Like that whole section of chapter 2, it talks about how these, these new Christians and what they did. And it mentions several things about they're worshiping together, they're, they're studying the, together, uh, the communion together. It talks about even they're, they're taking care of each other's physical needs. But notice verse 46. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Go back and read the section, all the things they did, but the one thing describes who they were. It shares sincere hearts. Of all the things that can be said of them. It didn't mention their great faith. It mentions their sincere hearts. What's the greatest chapter in the Bible? I guarantee you, nobody says Matthew chapter 23. This is not people's favorite. They may love Romans 8. They may love 1 Corinthians 13. They may love Hebrews 11. There's, there's great faith chapters. There's great Bible chapters. But Matthew chapter 23, nobody loves this chapter. I confess to you that preaching through this chapter has not been fun. And I know you want to say, you imagine listening to it <laughs> for a month. But we all know we should study all of Scripture. But notice how the chapter ends. It's important to remember the setting. Jesus has been calling out the Pharisees, the religious leaders, publicly condemning them for their double standards, their hypocrisy, their pretending. But as he concludes this barrage, something happens. And I think if we were there, if we could hear his words, we would have noticed a change of tone. Maybe he would have slowed down. Maybe there would have been a pause. He dearly loves these people. Even these people... That he's condemning. He loves them. And his passion turns to pity. Even sadness. Look at verse 37. O Jerusalem. Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as the hen gathers her brood under her wings. And you were not willing. See, your house is left to you Desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. At the end of Matthew 23, Jesus just comes across as emotionally spent. He's emotionally exhausted from calling the religious leaders out. He knows, he knows that if the common Jew follows their leadership, they're going to follow them to hell. And it's breaking his heart. So he calls them out all chapter long and now he's ending. He's knowing that it's just bad. It's just bad. It's tough love. It's tender love. Because Jesus loves these people. He knows his days are numbered. He is about to say to God, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He was about to die for them. So how do you summarize Matthew 23? I think if if Jesus would just put it into one word, one, one sentence, just a short phrase, just be real. Just be real. Maybe it's impossible to eliminate all hypocrisy from every one of us for all time, but shouldn't we try Should we move toward that? The last blank on your outline, i put it on the screen. We need to understand spiritual authenticity is not being yourself. It's dying to self. And that's the difference. Look at Galatians 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Paul wrote that. To say, this is what it means. This is what it looks like. This is being real. It's not being yourself. It's living for him. I want us to share this verse together. Let's read this verse in unison, shall we? Good and loud. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. See, authenticity is admirable. You respect somebody for not being two-faced. But what if who they are is not good? You can be authentically mean. You can be authentically hateful. You can be authentically selfish. Spiritual authenticity is the goal. Our goal is the same goal that Christ had for the religious leaders. It's the same today. Be real. Christ living in you. Christ living through you. Christ giving you a new life by his grace, by his power, because of, instead of, in lieu of your weakness. So everything we do points to him. So when people see you, they're not seeing a hypocrite. What they see you is that you are striving to be a completely committed follower of Jesus. You are pointing to him. Our invitation is for you to let him do that for you. Let him wash you clean, give you a new life, a new creation, so you can be his child, so you can no longer have to hide things. You can be real. You can be genuine. Or if we could just pray for you in any way, with your baptism, prayer, whatever your desire why not you come as we stand and sing to encourage?